0: What are the challenges that we face, such as like a small product change can throw the cycle time of a operation off completely and we would have to uh, rebalance our manufacturing systems, which can tend to be very expensive depending on what the change can be.
1: Pashi presents The Means of Production, a podcast about what it really takes to build, maintain, and scale the processes that produce the physical products that power our world. Every episode, we ask a manufacturing expert to walk us through the nuts and bolts of how they do their job. We explore how and why they got into manufacturing, dive deep into the hardest problems they've solved on production lines, and discuss their thoughts on what's broken in manufacturing today and how those things can be fixed. This podcast is hosted by Sidit Sangui, Pashi's U.S. Manufacturing Operations Lead and former Assembly Engineer at Ford Motor Company. If you are a part of the manufacturing world and you're interested in being a guest on the means of production, please get in touch with me at sidit at pashi.com, which is S-I-D-D-H-I-T at P-A-S-H-I Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4. Today, we have Clara Goldberg, Lead Process Engineer for eMotors, Rotor, for Powertrain Engineering for Ford Motor Company. Welcome, Clara.
0: Thank you, Sid. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. Thank you for being here. And uh, before Clara gets started, she has a disclaimer message to say.
0: Thanks, Sid. I just want to say that I work at Ford, but this is my own opinion and is not the opinion of Ford Motor Company. I'm not a spokesperson for Ford Motor Company, official or otherwise.
1: Thank you, Clara. So, how are you? Uh, what is going on? Uh, how are you adjusting to COVID? Uh, how is everything, Clara?
0: I am doing very well. Thanks, Sid. It's been quite an interesting year, you know, going into the office every day and then transitioning now, working from home most of the time, except, you know, going into suppliers, into our manufacturing facility to install some equipment, but otherwise have been working from home. I feel very fortunate because we have a lot of virtual tools that we can use to communicate with each other and to do our work. So it has, um, I'm very fortunate, very lucky.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, so glad you're doing well and safe and you're able to work and you're able to be productive. Uh, So glad to hear that, Clara. So why don't we get started? Sure. All right. So Tell us a little bit about like what you do at Ford Motor Company and how did you get here in the first place? What was that journey like from as far as, you know, as far back as, as you want to start, tell us how you ended up as a lead process engineer for Ford Motor Company.
0: Absolutely. So I guess to start back from the beginning of time, <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, you know, one thing that has always interested me is puzzles and, you know, figuring out complicated puzzles or situations and, and, you know, organizing them and figuring them out. So that kind of led me to engineering in general. When I was in college, I learned of industrial engineering. So, I became very interested in manufacturing systems. And I think because there are so many different aspects to manufacturing and so many different um, roles that are played into making a manufacturing system. Not that, you know, designing a certain product or widget is not. That has many different aspects to it, too. But for me, it was partially the systems aspect to it that had interested me. Um, You know, product development is one piece of bringing an actual product to life. And, um, you know, I guess Ford Motor Company in particular was of interest to me because it was the, the grandfather of manufacturing, you know, getting a product to people as they wanted it for a, um, a good price. So that has always been very interesting. Well, I shouldn't say always, but as I learned more about manufacturing in the industry, that has become very interesting to me. So I hired into Ford Motor Company as a, they call it them, uh, they call the role FCG, Ford College Graduate. It's a leadership rotational program for employees. I was a full-time employee, but what I did was I rotated throughout different jobs within three years. So I started at Ford Motor Company as a virtual assembly assembly engineer. So we would model equipment and manufacturing systems in on the computer with uh, 3d models and we would uh, use that to design our manufacturing systems before we actually built them and spent money to build the equipment and put them onto the floor so that was a great position to be in because it i had to work with many different people and like i do now which you know what what i'll get to as a process engineer we have to, you know, design this manufacturing system and put all of the pieces of the puzzle together to make a full system. So being in virtual assembly while I wasn't working with any physical equipment or, you know, in the manufacturing facilities, it was a great role to start out in and learn about all of the different aspects that go into building a manufacturing system and hey
1: clara before you move on can you explain what virtual assembly is
0: so virtual assembly is when we would model our equipment and our manufacturing systems in um, the virtual space prior to actually you know getting the physical equipment and, and procuring the physical equipment so It allows us to do engineering up front without actually spending the money and resources and time to build the equipment. Um, We can learn a lot about the system in our virtual space prior to actually building it. So laying out all of the pieces of equipment in a layout, making sure that there's enough Uh, room for people to move around the equipment and in the virtual assembly space we would actually model people uh, working within the equipment so it gives us a good sense of space for modeling. So virtual assembly is a a place where we can design our manufacturing systems up front in the virtual space on the computer prior to actually building any of the equipment um, on the floor.
1: Awesome. Well, well. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. And and yeah. Please go on with uh, with your experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, virtual assembly was a great place to learn about um, procuring equipment, making a manufacturing system, all in a space where we could quickly and easily change it, being in on the computer and virtual. We can learn a lot. There's a lot of different teams of people that get involved into designing a manufacturing system. For example, we have material handling. We have our safety team, ergonomics team. We have our equipment suppliers. um, We have our industrial or assembly engineers, our layout engineers, there's quite a lot of people uh, that that come together to make a manufacturing system. So that was a great opportunity for me to learn about how to design a manufacturing system without, you know, especially being a new engineer, because it was prior to actually having any equipment built and, you know, having to make expensive changes if I made a mistake. So it was a great place to learn about about that. My next role was industrial engineering in in one of our transmission plants, so it was a great opportunity for me to see how a manufacturing facility worked. Um, you know, with ongoing production, what are the challenges that we face, um, such as like a small product change can throw the cycle time of a operation off completely and we would have to uh, rebalance our manufacturing systems, which can tend to be very expensive depending on what the change can be. So I got to see a lot of things like that in um, the actual manufacturing facility. My next role, I was working with you, Sid, um as a, they call it a workstation engineer or assembly engineer. Right. Um, And that was to launch a brand new uh, transmission line. Very exciting. And what I did in that role was focus on the workstation aspect of it. And a workstation, um, for those that don't know, is basically, you know, a, a section of the assembly line where an operator has specific tasks that he or she has to do in that portion of the assembly line. So, we would be responsible for coming up with the process for, you know, what the operator would have to do in that specific workstation, the layout of the workstation. Um, so, for example, you know, what tools do they have to perform their job how is it laid out so that it's the most comfortable and easiest um, and efficient way that they can do their, their tasks, make sure that it's ergonomically safe, and then make sure that the entire line is is balanced so that we can meet our throughput that we are required to meet. From there, I, I did a process engineering job, uh, which for, for engine programs, or actually uh, multiple engine programs, it was at uh, when I joined that position, I was doing more of the upfront cost studies. So that was uh, very useful for me because I got to understand how much things cost. Um, and this was, and Also, the very beginning of designing a manufacturing system, so very high level. You know what are all of the different aspects of a manufacturing system, and and sometimes you don't always think about the costs of, let's say, for example, installation or um, some of our our gauging or software costs. You know, a lot of little details that tend to add up. So that was very valuable for me to understand the value of these systems that we are putting into our facilities. And one of the aspects of that position is understand, you know, is basically, you know, we would submit a cost study, for example, how much is it going to cost to build this particular engine? And then we have other teams that was what that would take that cost and then determine if it was worth spending that money to build this product. So how cost effective is it to, to build this manufacturing system? So that was a, a good um, rotation for me. From there, I went into quality operating systems role. So. In this role, we were focused on not only the quality of our manufacturing systems and the products that we were producing, but the system to which we build quality products. When I say the system, I mean all of our processes, procedures, system, uh, you know, applications. So, how do all of these different Application systems processes come together so that our engineers build quality systems that will uh, build quality products for our customer. So that's one area that I think a lot of people don't really get to work in or get to see. And it's one area that I think is very important, but it's not always Valued because it's not necessarily a technical aspect to our jobs, right? So from there, that finally brought me to the role that I'm in now. I feel very um, passionate about making our vehicles more safe for the environment, and I'm I'm very happy that Ford is moving in that direction. And I very much wanted to be in that area. So, and not only that, but I also, like I said before, I'm very interested in all of the different aspects of engineering and systems and bringing it all together to, to make a system that produces products for our customers. So that is what led me to want to be a process engineer and further than that into electrification and even further than that it's also a field that's newer to the industry so there's a lot to be learned it's very exciting um lots of new designs and puzzles to solve (laughs) (laughs) great so um that's that's uh, where I got to where I am now.
1: That's a great answer Clara. So so let me unpack this a little bit and you know I want to preface this by saying that th- there are so many girls that you know want to get into stem fields and and now there's good encouragement for them to get into stem fields but even then there is some hesitation in going into the quote-unquote the dirty fields right so manufacturing is it it is admittedly messy and dirty but I I do want to say and Clara can confirm to all the ladies who are listening and the the girl engineers future girl engineers who are listening is that we have so many tools now things are being innovated in manufacturing so much and here i'm referring to the virtual uh, assembly part and all of these new electrification you know programs that it's it's not like what you might expect in your head that you know it's going to be you're going to keep moving like heavy objects or something yeah once in a while you'll have to go to the floor and you'll have to get inside a machine and. And troubleshoot it right but other than that it's very creative it's it's very fun it's very interesting to see an entire assembly line come alive and and make something that was just pieces on one end and become like a component on the other end so I hope it gives our listeners you know encouragement that that uh, the way Clara came from getting into this field and then looking at all of these different rotations and and then ending up in making an actual assembly line for a very advanced part of, of the company. So I hope that really inspires the others to to follow uh, because manufacturing is quite an often neglected area when it comes to STEM field. So having said that, well, you explained what Virtual Factory is and that's still something that, you know, a lot of the big companies are doing, but we expect with lots of stuff like AR and VR and Uh, the ease of, you know, using CAD, smaller companies to also be able to save a lot of money simulating their whole line up front or like their smaller lines or their shops up front, you know, before building them, they can find out a lot of problems that might happen. Um, And I didn't know about, uh, you know, your other rotation with the cost studies. So so I, I know it now and you're right. It absolutely gives you a great commercial or financial picture of what it takes to build a line, you know, uh, financially, so I'm glad you got that uh, that role, and uh, the quality operating systems is actually like like Clara like you said, it's re- literally defining and, and writing and managing the standards that that keep our quality up where it should be, and and making sure that it is enforced or it is followed or you know updating it when it needs to be updated and so on and so forth. So I think you got a, a really well rounded uh, set of assignments to prepare you for this role so so i think that's a good answer and uh, yeah all the best in this new role and i think you might already have some good answers for the for the for the next question with all of the things you've done which is what was like the hardest technical problem you've had to face in your career it could be in any of your roles it could be a series of problems it could be a tough year it could be anything and how did you face it? So walk us through that, please.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Sid, for saying that. You know, I hope that uh, being a female in this field can be an inspiration to people that haven't thought of it before. Very interesting, very exciting stuff going on. So thank you for, for saying that. Now, as far as technical problem. I'm going to go back to the time that we worked together in our assembly engineering on the new transmission line. One of the big problems I think that we were having with not only in our program, but programs across our powertrain manufacturing engineering um, was cycle time, cycle time, um, estimation or, um, prediction when we were doing the engineering versus what we were seeing in real time. I think there was, there were some aspects that were missing. And one of the aspects of that was our non-cyclic tasks, and non-cyclic tasks, um, which is actually just what we called it, they actually are cyclic tasks, um, which is funny, but it's it they're ta- they're cyclic tasks that don't happen every single cycle. So um, for example, when an operator has to get a new uh, package of washers or bolts um, or you know handle different material, um, packaging or, you know, something like that where they're not necessarily doing it every cycle, but they have to do it. And that, that, um, goes into our cycle time. So I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's just say that we had each workstation had a cycle time requirement of 20 seconds. Um, so, you know, 180 transmissions per hour that we were building, we needed to make sure that every workstation on our assembly line was 20 seconds to meet that uh, JPH. So what we would do, or what I guess was the standard at the time was we would estimate 0.3 seconds of that cycle would go to um, these non-cyclic tasks on average. The problem with that was that these cyclic tasks change, you know, for every cycle, depending on what the operator has to do. So sometimes an operator might have to do something as simple as open a bag of a new bag of bolts. It could be as complicated as taking a cart or getting a new cart of, of products, um, moving these um, big, heavy plastic bins over. Um, changing swapping out carts which takes quite a significant amount of time so what I found during that role and doing many studies of people performing these tasks was there were there were some that would average out to be about 0.3 seconds per cycle but there were others that I that I found that would take about 5 seconds per cycle on average. So that is a big chunk of our cycle time and that that's a fourth yeah, of our like, cycle. Time.
1: Yeah, that's huge.
0: Yeah, so that that is really big and when we're only estimating 0.3 seconds uh, for that task, that means we're going to be over cycle. We're there's no way that we can meet our cycle time with you know, estimating 0.3 seconds when it's actually an average of five seconds. So this, it was a big impact to our manufacturing system. So what I did was I I studied our tasks, the tasks that our operators do. I created this calculator so that, um, because the estimating the cycle time is very meticulous it, it takes a lot of work, and a, it's a lot of details. We use Modaps to estimate our cycle time, and Modaps is it's basically a standard for se- estimating cycle time. So it would assign a certain cycle time for each movement an operator would make, and those movements movements can be as small as you know turning your fingers to twist a a bolt and that one movement is assigned to a certain amount of time. So it's a very meticulous task to go through and, and do this work to estimate cycle time. So what I did was I created a calculator where our engineers could just input what tasks the operator has to do and it would spit out a cycle time. So using that calculator, we were able to more accurately predict the cycle time that we were seeing on the floor. And it helped us so that, you know, we didn't have to change our equipment around. So many times, if we couldn't meet cycle time on a particular workstation, we would have to Move work from one workstation to another and basically rebalance the line. And when you have equipment that's in place, that can be very expensive to do that. And it's very, very frustrating because it seems like for something as simple as non-cyclic tasks that are, you know, just moving some material around, it can be very frustrating because it's just this little task that puts you over cycle and you have to make, spend all of this money to make this change. So that, I think, was that, that was a difficult task, <laughs> very meticulous, and, and it was also difficult because it was something that, you know, people, I guess, didn't really pay attention to much. And, you know, 0.3 seconds of cycle time seems like it, it's fine, you know, it could be, you know, they only have to move some material, but then once you see it can add up to a, as much as five seconds per cycle, it can really make a big difference.
1: Yeah, that was uh that was really good and i i did want to you know hear it from you once because you know we worked on this a little bit and uh, but but i didn't know you know how you how exactly you went about it and and what you did and and thanks for thanks for saying all that um so there's a lot to unpack here before we move on to our next questions some some technical terms and some other non-technical stuff right so mode apps uh, i was just wanted to say that for viewers not familiar it's the modular arrangement of predetermined time standards all right and I want to emphasize that meticulousness that Clara was talking about and also something that's very interesting so this is literally recording every single movement every operator on every workstation makes right so if there are 100 operators on an assembly line there are MoDAPs codes explaining or describing every finger movement for every one of those operators for every task. So just imagine that uh, how you know how much instruction we have and how much recording and how much careful detail is being put into this because every minute is you know three transmissions, like Clara was saying. And every lost minute is, is that many transmissions lost. So there is scrutiny about everything. And part of that scrutiny, which was missing, was that when they have to arrange these trays or, you know, tear a packet or something like that, those many of those actions were missing or, or inaccurate, right? And I also want to remind, or I guess, uh, you know, so, some of you who are people familiar with, like, statistics or, you you might be pointing out and saying that yeah it's a, you know you're you're distributing this within each cycle that's correct we don't really have a great way of putting something that takes you know five minutes every two hundred cycles in in a great way into our cycle time there's not really a good way to do that so we estimate it by dividing it. Between all of these cycles and going like you know, five minutes divided by 200 cycles, and that's what Clara is talking about with the 0.3 seconds. But it does mean that when they do have to change it, they literally stop doing their work because they have to change it and you know, change this tray, or sometimes it's a really big card that they have to move in and out, and that disturbs a lot, and then they have to. go at really fast speeds trying to catch up to with the next jobs so it's important that we at least capture this correctly and that's what clara's calculator made it very very easy to do right so i wanted to just emphasize how how detailed that was and how these little things can really bleed revenue if not if not captured so um thanks a lot uh, for that explanation clara it was a great example if, if you don't have anything else to add on that let's let's move on to the next question
0: sure thank you for providing that explanation
1: yeah yeah no problem um i I, I found it very very interesting what you were doing and, and that whole subject so there are there's so many aspects of you know being lead or or the, any of the other roles you had uh, because you're always working with a team you're always working in a plan you're always working with a law it's a very collaborative experience, you know, building an assembly line. So what is the hardest non-technical problem that you have faced and how did you face it?
0: Sure. Well, like you were saying, and I was saying earlier, there are so many different, there are so many people involved in producing a system. So, um, communication is very important and can be very difficult to, To give an example of communication, I'll go back to when I was in my role in the quality operating systems uh, team. I had inherited the, our failure mode avoidance procedure. And while this is a very important subject, it was a subject that was very confusing. I will say to most of our engineers and it's amazing what things can morph into, (laughs) um, when not really understood or communicated (laughs) well, (laughs) um, you know, this, this process started out as something pretty simple and, and, you know, for people that are in the manufacturing industry, you're probably very familiar with FMEAs um, and control plans. You know, how are you controlling your processes and your product um, characteristics? So, uh, which, you know, can be, start out as very simple, but it's amazing with, you know, with all of our applications and systems that we come up with, Um, you know, the process that we try to communicate, the procedure was handed to so many different hands throughout the years that it became so confusing that people had no idea what to do or or how to perform this process, which is something that really should be very simple. So that was a, a really big challenge when I came into this group because it was, I guess the first thing I had to do was uncover you know where things came from and what their intent was. I remember there was something called a pre-launch control plan and um people would confuse that with a preliminary control plan which is completely different. A preliminary control plan is just, you know, control plan at its early phases. Um, and whereas a pre-launch control plan describes control methods that are used in the your manufacturing system prior to its um, full launch, prior to you know it having its normal controls, it's it's while it's the manufacturing system is still being launched. And for example, at that time, you might want to have someone checking a. Um, checking to make sure that, you know, you have um, a full rundown, a hundred percent of the pieces, whereas in normal production, we would maybe only check a sample of them. So there were a lot of things that were lost in translation over the years. And that was a big challenge, you know, in that role I spent, and this was about two years that I spent just doing research talking to different people and trying to understand the meaning behind what all of these different terms that were in this procedure meant, um, where they came from and how they came to be the way that they are. And I basically had to tear down the procedure to its roots and lay it out so that it's it it can be simplified and understood by our engineering community. So that is something that I think, like I was saying earlier, things as simple as that, which aren't always paid attention to in our engineering world, because it's not quite as technical, but it's such a huge, has such a huge impact on our processes and, in our system and making a quality product that it leads to, um, technical issues. So, and it's funny because, you know, in the role that I'm, I'm in now, I'm actually using that process to develop my system. And I've used this failure mode avoidance process to, to find holes in our system. So, you know, to find, areas where we might not be have sufficient control methods to make sure that we're not putting out a product that you know is is undesirable to our customers so so by following this process and our procedures I'm now able to I've discovered many holes in our process and failure modes and And which enables me to build a better process, so that we have better quality products. Yeah,
1: well, that's that's very interesting, uh, Clara. That it came, you know, it's like a full circle, right? What you what you just explained, and you know, when you were in the quality operating systems group, it might have seemed at that time that, like, you know, as you referred to earlier, that not many people pay attention to this but this is literally where the quality policy and the quality standards are are checked and defined and updated and you found something that was would have so many ripple effects down the line due to how that system kind of matured and being a big company this this would be something in every big company right it, the, uh, something that started off as uh, like a well-intended system it would sometimes lose kind of its original form when you know fast forwarded for like the next five years or 10 years because of you know so many conflicting interests and parties so this is very normal and it's that's why a group like the one you were in is very important that it be the watchdog of of the quality and for for our um, listeners you might already be knowing this but fmea is the failure mode and effects analysis and in this case Clara would be talking about or in general the people I guess I meet with meet with the podcast would be talking about the process FMEA so the PFMEAs and this this would be related to what can go wrong in the process so if you're making a t-shirt then you you might you know put something like if a thread is loose it might lead to you know the threads coming off and then the t-shirt losing its elasticity or something like that I don't want to get into technical details about ford's product but that is what you would list down right so it's very important that you be able to use this system to list down everything that can go wrong in a process and it's it's very it is very funny that you are using this system yourself to develop a completely new process which admittedly very few people in the entire industry globally you know really know it's 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 very new making electric cars is very new so it's great that you did that work and now it's helping you in, in your job today. Uh, that's a great example and I believe that it's not entirely non-technical. I think thinking up uh, all of these technical uh, situations where a process can fail requires a good base and a good setup of, of that system to help you do it. And if that's not there, it's going to be very hard for process engineers to actually... Think of all the ways in which a failure can happen. So that is a very, a very good example, um, Clara. Thanks for sharing that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It does make a very big impact in our our manufacturing systems to understand how what are, what can possibly go wrong, and it's you know there's ama- it's amazing, you know, for ex- everything that can go wrong that you wouldn't expect it to. You know, in one of our systems, for example, we've just recently discovered that something was programmed wrong with our robotics and we were completely missing components that needed to be assembled um, together. And we had no detection method for it. And we went back to our process um, FMEA and found that we had a hole or, or we found that there was a failure mode um, or actually a cause of failure mode that we did not know before. So it's development of, of these things, especially in new products that we haven't built before that where these processes can really help us.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, I guess talking about, you know, stuff that can go wrong or, or is not working correctly. If, if you had a magic wand to to fix something in your work or your industry or just anything related to your what you've experienced in your career with a magic wand you know with that magic wand what would that be and and why and remember our magic wand is not not that strong it doesn't give you like unlimited money and time or make everyone listen to what we have to say, <laughs> although that'd be a great power, but if it was something else, what would that be?
0: Hmm. Um, I would have to say eliminating all of the administrative tasks that we have to do. So hopefully this is a very powerful wand, even though it doesn't give us all the time in the world, but. I think that sometimes we're so bogged down with all of the administrative tasks that we do. You know, we have hundreds of systems and that we have to work in and data that's, you know, scattered in different places or repeated um, in multiple locations. And I spend so much time um, trying to Either, you know, find data, asking around, um, getting access to systems. So a lot of waiting around, just trying to get access or trying to find someone that knows where to get a certain piece of information, getting trained in our new systems and, you know, inputting data into multiple systems because these different systems don't communicate with each other or share um, a database so I would say that I would love to have one cohesive system that allows data to communicate across these different applications and allows better communication, you know of the data so people can easily find it and use it. I think that what we have now is a lot more complicated. Than it really needs to be. And um, I think that this is, it's something that can be doable. And I think it's not only something that is at Ford Motor Company, but I think in the industry in general, I think, you know, we have so many different applications and especially for companies that are so old and it's, it's very hard to change systems have new systems. There's a lot of people that use these systems and, and having things, you know, having them communicate with each other can be a very daunting task. So I think it's something that can be done, but would definitely take time and energy and maybe a little bit of magic wand. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good answer, Clara. Thank you. Um, you. You went for the real, practical, clear and present problems. So so thank you, uh, because this would be something that everyone identifies with. And this is normal because, like you said, if it's a very big, mature company or like the granddaddy of manufacturing like Ford, different systems would have evolved for different reasons, independent of each other, through time, you know, over time. Decades and it, it's naturally difficult to to have them at one place because they would have their own processes and their own specializations. So that is completely understandable. But but if I may plug Pashi here because it's it's so relevant that uh, with Pashi it's designed to be the operating system for manufacturing. You know this is our aim. This is what we want to do. And in Pashi. Whenever you have a product running on the line and and you can run the entire physical assembly line through Pashi from a web browser, you also see the live traceability in the in our genealogy view, where the interaction of every product with every device and every variable of that device like a like a press would be a device and the press force would be like the variable you can see all of that and if you see if you saw something wrong then we also have maintenance information on the same system so what this means is that if there was some maintenance ticket that happened on the press the night before or in the night shift and maybe something was miscalibrated or you know it didn't go through its total preventive maintenance and, you know, we overshot its, like, tool life or, or whatever it is, you know, something in the maintenance was not correct, then you wouldn't have to look at a different maintenance system and a different traceability system to understand what it is that went wrong because those two would be available in the same spot. You could, in fact, overlay it in, in our analytics and and see okay, you know, at this time, this wasn't changed in the tooling by the technician. Uh, maybe it should have been or it, it was not calibrated. Maybe that's why the spike in the press force happened and so on and so forth. So, th- this would save you valuable time and in manufacturing, time is literally because of the GPH money. So, this is where Pashi hopes to help the industry and uh, bring in more and more features like or more and more aspects of of manufacturing that in, in one place that you would uh, have to otherwise look into different places. So, thank you for that answer. It address, addresses a really relevant problem that the industry faces, which is, can I have all of my data in one place? And like you said, it's a daunting task, but but we want to be there to solve it.
0: That's amazing, Sid. That would be very helpful, <laughs> having to go into these different places to find data or even going physically into a plant, which, you know, past year with COVID isn't always possible to, you know, and to go into it to um, physically to a place to see what's going on. So to be able to get the data um, real time in one system is very valuable.
1: Yeah. And, and the least we can do for manufacturing engineers is to at least, you know, have all of these administrative tasks, like you mentioned, be centralized or be remote or be very easily accessible so that the, the physical tasks or the in-person tasks are, are a little bit better uh, than, than they are. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, Clara, it would help everyone. So, thank you for the magic wand answer. It was a, it was a great answer. And now for the fun surprise question before we close, which is, if this was 2051 or if you could go in, you know, forward in time to 2051, you know, what would manufacturing look like or what would a factory look like to you at that time?
0: It's hard to even think that far in the future, um, 2051, 30 years from now. Um, I would imagine that we're all flying around and, (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. Um... (laughs) Um... (laughs) So, um... but in all seriousness, I think looking back to my role in the virtual assembly group, I think it was very beneficial to see our manufacturing system on the computer prior to actually building any of our equipment or making changes. It saved us a lot of money and a lot of time and resources to engineer all of our problems out prior to actually spending any of our resources, time, money. Um, So there's been a lot of talk of something called the digital twin, And that's actually having our production systems that are currently in production, seeing it on the computer real time. So said like you were saying with um, Pashi, you know, seeing how our equipment is performing and potentially addressing maintenance issues with the equipment prior to it actually breaking down and, you know, Losing a lot of money because we're losing all of that JPH when it's broken down. That would be highly beneficial for our systems. We can actually see how the um, machines are performing. and also for continuous improvement, we would be able to continuously improve uh, our our equipment based on what we're seeing in our manufacturing systems and then beyond the data, like I was saying with the 3d and virtual say, you know, we're, we're seeing a issue with cycle time and we need to uh, rebalance the line and to rebalance the line, we need to move equipment around. We could do that in the 3d space, see what it looks like, see how it performs. Um, and if, you know, one scenario isn't the best, or we missed something. We could easily change it and move it before we actually change anything and move anything and spend money doing that on the floor. Whereas before, and actually even today, we might have to actually make those changes on the floor, see that we have a problem, and then spend even more money resolving it um, on our manufacturing floor. So. Um, I would say a system that is connected, integrated, data-organized, and in an easy-to-find place. I w- and I would imagine that the Magic Wand will do its magic by 2051, and we'll have, um, you know, maybe Pashy will be the system that we have in place to get our data all in one spot.
1: That, that would be a uh, great uh, you know to be in Ford Motor Company or like uh, like in a big factory of the future where like you said, you can do a lot of the virtual work and and maybe while you're moving CAD in your computer, you know everything is like resolved, you know, the electrical connections and the spacing and the material you know presentation all of that which is you know kind of approximated right now because of technological limitations would at that time you know be very very accurate like and like extremely precise that if you did it on in in cad on your computer it would be exactly the same or almost exactly the same on the floor so you would have to do it just once when you're absolutely sure so yeah i think i think the factory of the future would would have that yeah yes absolutely
0: it's an exciting time to to be in manufacturing, especially with all of these technological advancements and all of the opportunities that we have to improve. And with all of this new technology that we have, it's a it's very exciting time to be in manufacturing.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, Clara. So, well, Clara, thank you for that answer as well. And it was... Um, A lot of fun talking to you it was a lot of new things I learned and you know some things like you know we worked together but I still didn't know about uh, some of your rotations and all the great stuff you did so thank you for coming on the podcast and you know talking about your journey and the problems you faced and and how you know this could be very encouraging for you know so many people out there who are thinking of you know getting into this field uh, but may not be sure about you know what it's like and what are the different aspects of, of of manufacturing. And I think your well-rounded rotations and experiences would have given them some idea. So, thank you so much for coming on the Means of Production.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me, Sid. It was a pleasure talking with you.
1: All right, Clara. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to The Means of Production podcast for more stories from people behind all the manufactured goods we use, love, and depend on. This episode was made possible by Pashi, the operating system for manufacturing. Pashi unifies the entire production process for any product, encompassing operator instruction and data input interfaces, stage logic and parameter thresholding, machine interfacing and configuration, robot programming and coordination, and stage-to-stage production flow control into a single PASHI program, check us out at PASHI.com. And until we meet again, have a fantastic day and take care.